This morning, I want to do something a little bit different with you here at uh, Foothill. Ordinarily, we focus on a particular passage of Scripture and go into a sufficient detail that we might uh, understand that passage. We've been working our way through the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 11, but we're uh, just stepping away from that for a few weeks here as the Easter season is upon us. So what I want to do with you this morning is I want to recount with you an amazing story. My uh, hope, my prayer, my goal with you this morning is to begin to turn your heart towards the resurrection. Christmas is a season. Easter is an event. And far too often, I think, certainly in my own heart, and I think I can speak for many of you, Easter sneaks up on us. It kind of surprises us and and arrives, and we haven't made proper spiritual preparation for celebrating what is indeed the great and glorious crowning event of Christian theology, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, beginning this morning and then carrying over into next or this coming Friday, Good Friday, I want to speak with you in a way that hopefully will help prepare you to celebrate this great event. So what I want to do with you this morning is, using a harmony of the Gospels, I want to follow or trace with you the last six months of Jesus' public ministry. I want to pull pull together the four Gospel accounts... And it'll have to be quick, and it'll have to be brief, and we're not going to be able to pause everywhere. I'd love to pause along the way. But to just bring all those threads of the narrative together for you, that you might follow the last six months of the public ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that led Him to that great triumphal entry. It would be... Inappropriate for me to fail to say at this moment that as we enter into this process together, I am so deeply indebted to the ministry of my friend, Dr. Doug Bookman. There are certain people in a man's life that have profound influence, and Dr. Bookman is one of those in my life. He has deeply and he has profoundly affected me, and in particular, His biblical insights and his written harmony of the Gospels has been so instrumental in my understanding of how these events fit together. And so I want to just publicly say, if Doug were here, I'd I'd point to him. He's not. How indebted I am to him. Now, why do we need to preach this kind of a sermon? Why do I need to do this? Why not just pick a passage? Why not just go right to the triumphal entry and just work our way through that passage? And that would be perfectly valid and, in fact, in... In prior Palm Sundays, I've done just that. Well, as I've been thinking about all of this, I've got some answers for that question for you. One is that I, I think many, many Christians lack a comprehensive view of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Events and teachings from the Gospels are often lifted out of their context. 
And the danger of doing that is that it opens us wide to misapplication and misunderstanding of what those various uh, events and and, uh, teachings of Christ are all about. Beyond that, the Gospels themselves, each of the four Gospels, were written to convey a, a specific point. There are four of them because they convey four complementary points or points of view with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so by harmonizing them together this morning for you, it's going to give us a much more comprehensive view, much more complete view of the life of Christ. As I've been preparing for this and a Friday night's message, the second part of this, my heart has been inflamed with love for Jesus Christ. I don't remember the last time sermon preparation has so ignited my passion and my love for Christ as it has in the preparation for these two messages. So I hope that I can convey to you at least a small measure of what the Spirit of God has done for me as I have worked this through. And finally, we trace these last six months of the life of Christ together because it sets the big and broad context for the triumphal entry. What in the world was all that about? I hope to be able to answer that question for you. So this morning, there are a place for notes, although certainly not much room for notes. On the back of your bulletin this morning, for the first of a two-part series designed to prepare our hearts for the miracle of Easter. We're going to have to move exceedingly quickly in order to get through what we need to get through. You may not be able to keep up in your Bibles to all the places I'm going to go. If you can, great, follow me. If you can't, don't fall behind. Just listen. As I said, there's not a lot of room for extensive note-taking either, and I'm sorry about all of that. Just listen. It's okay. I won't want you to miss the sweep and the flow of these incredible six months. So sit back, listen carefully, and join me on the road to Jerusalem. The Gospels begin with a very abbreviated narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ and then His entrance into His public ministry. His public ministry really explodes through the Gospels at His baptism. It is the event that launches Him. Matthew's Gospel, Mark's Gospel, begin with the preaching of the forerunner, John the Baptist, And his assertion that Jesus is Messiah, one to come. John's gospel tells us in John chapter 2, by his first cleansing of the temple, that Jesus begins this public ministry with an assertion of his messianic authority over all. But generally, that first year of the gospels, we don't have a lot of detailed information about. There's just a few snippets here or there. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, he sort of summarizes it all for us in just a couple of verses. 
This early year was spent in and around Jerusalem and Judea. John says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's John's summary of that early year. Christ is going about, he's teaching, he's doing miracles, his popularity is beginning to grow. But Jesus, even at the beginning, knows these crowds are fickle. Their interest in him is not genuine. Following that first year, we enter into a period of time that lasts about 18 months, and it's a major shift in the narratives because Jesus then moves to the north, to Galilee. The event that begins this migration north is the imprisonment of John the Baptist by Herod. So Jesus returns to Galilee. Matthew chapter 4, he says it this way, verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. On the way there, he passes through Samaria, John chapter 4, and he ministers to that woman at the well. You remember that. These, this 18-month period covering the, the second and into the third year of his public ministry is the great and growing time of his popularity. These are called the great Galilean ministry. It's a time of messianic proof and presentation. Matthew, again, sort of summarizes this for us at the end of chapter 4. He says, And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics. And he healed them, and great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I've told people repeatedly, this is the time when Christ was healing indiscriminately. In fact, some writers say that he effectively eliminated illness from Galilee during this time. Sort of easy to understand if you knew somebody who could raise the dead, heal a withered limb, give sight to the blind, right? How far would you go? How far would you go to get healed? Whoever came to him, he he healed them. And there's this growing sense of of acclaim and popularity among the crowds. He goes to Galilee, by the way, because Galilee at that time has the largest concentration of Jews in the world. So this is the place for his messianic credentials to be put on display. Luke chapter 6 And following tells us that there, during that great Galilean ministry, he ordains the twelve and preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Ordaining those twelve, he gives them very specific instructions. Matthew chapter 10, verse 6. He says, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is that their message, the message that the Messiah is here, the great king of David, the Davidic king is here. And that message is to go very narrowly to the Jewish people.
At that same time, while his popularity is growing among the multitudes, the hostility is growing among the leadership in Israel. That hostility reaches a crisis level in Matthew chapter 12 and what's known as the unpardonable sin. It is there in Matthew chapter 12, you remember it well, right? Where they say that the things he does, he does by the power of Satan. That is the official rejection of the teaching of Jesus, his claim to be Messiah. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, that's their answer to the crowds. This man does what he does by the power of Satan. Officially, Judaism has hardened itself against him. Jesus' preaching ministry changes dramatically. Beginning in Matthew chapter 13, he begins speaking in parables. And it is there in Matthew 13 that the great kingdom parables begin to unfold. And throughout the rest of the gospel, he, he conducts essentially a public ministry of preaching in parables and then privately interprets those parables for his disciples. He does this that he might continue to be able to preach publicly and avoid the official confrontation with the Jewish authorities by which they might arrest him prematurely. His popular rejection, after that official rejection there in Matthew 12, his his popular rejection actually occurs, or at least the account of it occurs for us in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. There at the end of that spectacular miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, They want to take him by force and make him king, but he withdraws from them and and gives them that incredible discourse on the bread of life. And there at the end of that long teaching section were recorded in John 6, verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. There was a moment of crisis there of popular rejection. The great crowds begin to thin because they begin to sense the the level of commitment that he is calling them to. It's also a dramatic change in the narratives from that point forward because Jesus' public ministries begin to diminish, or um, miracles rather, begin to diminish from that point forward. That's when we begin to read that he'll do a miracle and he'll tell the person that he heals, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Jesus withdraws. We're now into the last six months here, actually entering into that third year. And he withdraws from the crowds. He, he seeks to get alone. He wants to be alone with his disciples. The popularity of the great early Galilean ministries have collapsed. He's been officially rejected. He's been popularly rejected. And so now he knows the cross is not very far away and he needs to begin to prepare his own for what that means. And so he seeks to get them away. He withdraws outside of, of Israel to Tyre and Sidon. But they sort of chase him there. And, and then he goes way north up to Caesarea Philippi by Mount Hermon. And, and there he's able to get alone with his disciples for a while. Matthew 16 kind of brings us to that account. And there in verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Of course, there is recorded for us Peter's great confession, right? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art Messiah. Verse 20, Matthew 16. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Messiah. There's a change that's going on. He is withdrawn. He's pulling back from the popular 
ministry. And he's, he's now working among this twelve, preparing them for what's coming. It's here in Matthew 16, verse 21, record for us that Jesus for the first time publicly and openly foretells his death and resurrection. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Of course, you know how the disciples react to that kind of news. Peter says, you know, God forbid. Christ responds to him and says, get behind me, Satan. It's really at this point that the faith of the disciples begins to, to crumble and crack. And so in Matthew 17, it's recorded for us the transfiguration. Jesus peels back his flesh, as it were, for just those inner three and gives them a momentary glimpse of himself in his glory as he will be when he returns. All designed to, to strengthen them and prepare them for what now awaits them. We move now into the final six months, the final six months of his public ministry. And this last six months focuses on three specific trips to Jerusalem. I put them in your notes for you there. Three times specifically, Jesus ventures into Jerusalem, right into the heart of enemy territory, as it were, for a specific purpose and then withdraws again and and ministers outside of of the city. First trip begins in early October. Jesus leaves Galilee where he has been ministering and he travels secretly to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles included a a daily uh, offering of water to to, uh, commemorate the miraculous supply of water that God provided to the nation of Israel during their wilderness wanderings after he had taken them out of Egypt. It had also come by that time to, to be viewed as a, as a future promise of the blessings to be poured out on the nation in the day when Messiah returns. Jesus in John chapter 7, there at the Feast of Tabernacles, he claims to fulfill that promise when he says, If any man is thirsty, let him come and drink from me. For out of his belly shall pour rivers of living water. Really, John 7 all the way through John 10, verse 21, speak of that time in the city of Jerusalem here in early October and the intensifying of the opposition. They're seeking to arrest him. They even send the temple police to get him, but the temple police are so amazed at his teaching, they come back empty-handed. At that point, Jesus leaves the city out into the countryside of Judea, and he's kind of avoiding Jerusalem. The authorities want to arrest him, but but they can't get him. It's at that time, in according to Luke chapter 10, that Jesus sends out the 70. The 70. He sends them out to act as his heralds and to announce the coming kingdom. Verse 9, Luke chapter 10, he says, Heal those who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Some believe that the 70 that he sends out out are designed to replace the Sanhedrin, who were the 70, the official leadership of Israel that had rejected him. And so, in a sense, the 70 he sends out is is a replacement for the Sanhedrin, who should have been doing 
what these 70 are doing, which is announcing Messiah. That's early October. The records go somewhat silent again until we get to the second trip, early December, back into the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication. Feast of Dedication, or as you and I know it as Hanukkah, celebrates the cleansing of the temple in 164 B.C. after it had been defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. So during the Maccabean revolt, they gain control of the city again and they cleanse the temple. So they celebrate it. It's called the Feast of Dedication. It appears in early December. Jesus again comes back into the city of Jerusalem for that feast and they are continually getting or, or seeking to, to try to get him to declare himself openly as Messiah because they want to arrest him. But he refuses to do so. But there in, in John chapter 10, he, he makes the amazing statement where he says, I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to stone him. So Jesus withdraws from the city again. John chapter 10 Verse 40, it says he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. That is, he he goes to the east side of the Jordan River to the area called Perea. And there for about three months, he's ministering. The reason he goes to Perea is because he is now close to Jerusalem, but he is outside of the legal authority of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin don't have influence over the, over the Romans on that side of the Jordan River, and so they are unable to force the Romans to do their bidding, which would be to arrest Christ and kill him. So Jesus is relatively safe there in the area of Perea. It's interesting, the Pharisees go and uh, try to lure him back. Luke chapter uh, 13, verse 31 just at, that some, uh, just at that time, some Pharisees came up saying to him, Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to him, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, listen to this. Behold, your house is left you desolate. And I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember that. Tuck it away in the back of your mind, because on Palm Sunday, the people say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there on the other side of the Jordan River, in the area of Perea, he continues to minister and the crowds continue to accumulate to him. According to Luke chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus turns on them and begins to speak to them about the cost of discipleship. Verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. It's almost as if Jesus at this point is trying to disperse the crowds. It's almost like he goes out of his way to drive them from him as he continues to ratchet up the cost of following him because he knows it's only a matter of a couple of months and he's going to be hanging on that cross. So he's ministering there in Perea. The Pharisees that follow over to that side are, are grumbling at him about his ministry and his his interest in in 
the downtrodden and sinners and so forth. And so it's there that Jesus tells, according to Luke 15, those, those uh, three great parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. It's a context that stands behind those parables. We arrive now in the month of February in his third, his third and final foray to the city. This one's amazing. Because Jesus here ventures back to Jerusalem, but he doesn't go into the city. He only goes as far as Bethany. Bethany is about two miles outside the city on the backside of the Mount of Olives. And he goes there to raise Lazarus from the dead. You remember this, John chapter 11. John spends a long time detailing this miracle, which is probably the most spectacular miracle Christ ever did in his public ministry. This miracle itself provides incontrovertible proof of his messianic claims. It is witnessed by multitudes of people. It's incontestable. In fact, Jesus delays two days before he comes to raise Lazarus from the dead in order to make the miracle even that much more spectacular. Four days in the tomb. Corruption and corrosion have set in. Remember? Don't open the tomb. He, the old King James, stinketh. Jesus has done everything he can to make this miracle as spectacular as possible. And he's doing it right on the doorsteps of the capital city. In fact, John chapter 12, verse 18 tells us later that people were still buzzing about this miracle at the time of the triumphal entry. And it is one of the reasons, as we'll show you here in a few minutes, why the crowds are so big and adoring. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he and his disciples leave the city of Jerusalem and they hide out for about six weeks in a town called Ephraim, about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. They hide out there because the chief priests and the Pharisees have planned to kill him and they've ordered all the people of the city to help them find him. John 11, verses 53 to 57. So for about six weeks, Jesus and his disciples are are hiding out in this little town about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. That's all under your section called background. The next major movement... It's what I call the road to Jerusalem. The road to Jerusalem. This happens sometime in early March. Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. So it is there that Messiah must make his official offer and suffer the official rejection of himself as God's Messiah, as the great Davidic king, as the ruler and king of Israel. In fact, John records for us, chapter 19, verse 15, when Pilate says to the nation, what shall I do with your king? They respond, we have no king but Caesar. This was the official presentation of himself to the nation. He had already been rejected quite a while ago, officially and popularly, but he cannot finally in a totality be rejected unless it happens there in the capital city. The king must be refused right at the footsteps of his throne. Josephus also tells us, by the way, that Passover, these times of year, this time of year, 
In this period in history, there were roughly a quarter of a million, 250,000 lambs sacrificed during the Passover. Now, roughly estimating about 10 people per lamb, that would put about two and a half million Jews in the city at this time, drawn, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 5, from all over the world. So there in the capital city, with two and a half million Jews drawn from all over the inhabited world, back for the Passover, Christ himself makes his official offer to the nation. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Remember Jesus said to be, we're to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, right? This is an amazing display of what he means by that. You remember, he's been hiding out in Ephraim. It's only about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you were going to go into Jerusalem for the Passover, you would think you would just turn south and head into the city, right? But he doesn't do that. In fact, he goes just the opposite. Rather than going into Jerusalem, he heads north through Samaria and Galilee. Luke chapter 17. Verse 11, it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Now, if you know anything about the geography of Jerusalem or uh, of Israel, you can't be on your way to Jerusalem and passing between or through Samaria and Galilee. Jerusalem is south, they are north. So rather than heading south into the city, he turns and heads north. On the way, he heals the ten lepers. Luke 17, 12 to 19 gives us that account. His purpose in heading north is to join with a band of Galilean pilgrims that get together and make their journey down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Wise as serpents, gentle as doves. He knows the only way he can enter into the city is under the protection of the crowds. Remember at the end of John 11, the people are asking, will he come? Do you think he'll come? Now, customarily, these, these pilgrim groups, they would, they would gather and then they would cross over the Jordan River in the north there into the land of Perea and they would head south on the east side of the Jordan River in order to avoid Samaria. And according to Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed them and he healed them there. So he's heading south into the city, but he's, he's following or he's moving in a band of pilgrims along the traditional route of those from the north, which is to avoid defilement and con, uh, uh, being contaminated by going through Samaria. They cross over the Jordan River to the east side. They travel down the east side of the river, cross back over at Jericho. So he's in this great crowd of pilgrims heading south. While traveling, he performs all kinds of miracles. He teaches the disciples. He, he speaks parables among the people. For example, Luke chapter 17, verse 20 to 37, he, he warns them of the judgment that will come preceding the kingdom. He gives a couple of parables in Luke 18, the, the need for persistent prayer. You remember that? That's the widow who needs the legal protection and she's driving the judge crazy and he uses that as to illustrate the need to be persistent in prayer. He gives a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18, 9 to 14, where the tax gatherer is thumping himself on his chest, right? Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's there in Matthew chapter 19 that the Pharisees come to him and they're trying to trap him and to, and to uh, 
to um, cause the people to turn against him there. And so they try to get him on the horns of the, of the uh, dilemma of divorce. Matthew 19. Very hot topic in Israel at that time. And so Jesus eludes the Pharisees' attempts to attract him, trap him there in, in Matthew chapter 19. This whole period is, is going on. There's a couple of weeks, really, that are happening as they're moving. It's there that Jesus confronts the rich young ruler, promises reward for following Messiah. It's there that he gives the parable of the workers that come in at various times into the harvest field. You remember? And at the end of the day, they all get paid the same thing. It's there that he foretells his death and resurrection again to his disciples. Matthew 20, Mark 10, Luke 18. He openly tells them, I'm headed into Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be resurrected. It's there that James and John, a little slow on the uptake, I guess you'd probably say, still seeing the crowds, still witnessing the miracles, still missing the meaning of the parables. Through their mother, that is Jesus' aunt, they come to him and they ask him for top seats in the kingdom that's coming. You remember that one, right? Jesus answers, verse 45, Mark 10, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Crossing back over the Jordan River at Jericho, Jesus enters the city there in Jericho, and He heals blind Bartimaeus and his companion. They're laying there and the crowds are swelling into the city of Jericho and, and they hear the noise and, and they call out and they want to know what's going on and someone tells them and, and so they holler out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. A king is here, Son of David. In fact, we know the crowds of pilgrims by this point is so large that that little guy Zacchaeus, he had to climb up in a tree in order to be able to see him. Remember that? The city is swelled to overflowing with the, with the crowds. And there Jesus visits with Zacchaeus. And then he tells the parable of the pounds. Do you remember that? Because the crowds, Luke 19, go ahead, Luke 19 or whatever. Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so he tells the parable of the pounds. To let him know, no, it's not coming right now. Jesus leaves Jericho, about 17 miles from Jerusalem, and he ascends up the backside of the Mount of Olives. Luke 19, 28, and after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. He and his disciples, they arrive in Bethany late Friday afternoon, and they spend... The weekend with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, his friends, there in the little village of Bethany, or of Bethany. The crowds, though, they have to hurry on into the city to find lodging before the Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. You remember, I told you the city's population swells at this time. And so you've got to find a place to stay. And for many, they can't even find lodging in the city. So there are tents that are absolutely dotting the hillsides all around these tent cities, all around Jerusalem, as the pilgrims flood in. As these pilgrims come into the city of Jerusalem, they have a twofold message for those that want to know if Jesus is really going to come to the feast. 
They say, absolutely, he is coming to the feast. How do we know? We've been traveling with him. We've been traveling with him. And beyond that, you know what? We can tell you exactly when he's going to be here. He's going to be here Sunday morning after the Sabbath. So the crowds know, they expect the king is coming. Saturday evening after the completion of the Sabbath, Jesus is invited to dinner, the home of a friend called Simon the leper. Undoubtedly someone he had healed. It's there at that, at that celebratory dinner that Mary anoints Jesus for his burial. <coughs> the disciples rebuke Mary for such extravagance and considered waste. But the one who is leading the rebuke is Judas. And John tells us, John chapter 12, beginning of verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he was concerned for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone, in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus publicly rebukes Judas at this feast. And I suspect that it is this, along with just the evil of his heart, the public rebuke and the offense to his pride, that pushes him over the edge. And it is at this point that Judas begins to hatch his devilish plan by which he will betray his own king. The actual betrayal doesn't take place until later in the week. But the plot is hatched there. We now arrive at the triumphal entry. It's Sunday morning. Jesus' entry into the city is his public assertion that he is Messiah. And he is making a claim to a national acknowledgement of that fact. And it must happen in the capital city. Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Not that this is a day like any other day that God has made. That this is the day when the king comes in to the city. Now prior to this, Jesus' credentials for his claim to be the king of Israel are primarily his miracle workings and the prophetic scripture that support them. Now his claim is supported by the public proclamation of the pilgrims themselves. All kinds of prophecy is fulfilled here in this triumphal entry. Throwing of garments before his, his uh, mount, his steed is a sign of homage before a king. The cutting of palm branches and, and laying them in the road is actually a gesture of popular revolt against the Romans. Palm branches were used during the Maccabean uh, rebellions to form shelters for the people to live in. So the palm fronds have sort of this nationalistic idea attached to them. So by spreading their garments and, and laying palm fronds, they're acknowledging him as the king and they're looking for him to come into the city and throw off Rome. Eliminate the Roman oppression. 
Matthew chapter 21, beginning of verse 4, he says, Now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophecy of the messianic king entering into his capital city, fulfilled here. By the way, the riding on the colt of a donkey... Kings, uh, Oriental kings, had two kinds of steeds they rode. One was the donkey rode in peacetime. The other was the war horse. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says, When Christ enters into the city again, he rides on the white war horse. The people cry out to him, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26. Hosanna, save us now! Hosanna to the son of David, Matthew 21, verse 9. There is this fevered pitch of messianic expectation. The king has arrived. By the way, wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. It is these great adoring crowds at this time that allows Jesus to be able to enter into the city without being immediately arrested and taken away. Matthew chapter 26, verse 5. Verse 4, they were plotting together to seize Jesus by self and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. They want to take him, but they can't. He has surrounded himself with adoring crowds. According to Luke 19... The Pharisees, they can't handle this acclamation, this popularity with the crowds. And they object to the public acclaim as him, as the great messianic king. And, and they want Jesus to tell the crowds to be silent. Luke 19, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Remember I told you earlier in Matthew chapter 10, verse 6, that previously Jesus had been instructing His disciples not to speak publicly about Him. He'd even refused in John 6, right? The popular crowd that wanted to take Him and by force and make Him king. But now it's time for all Israel to hear. It is time for the nation to hear the truth. The king has come. So if the multitudes will not proclaim it, then even the stones themselves will cry out as he enters in to his city. Further on, Luke 19, beginning verse 41 and following, Jesus having crested over, he, there's a dip down on the, on the west side of the Mount of Olives. He goes down that dip and then he comes back up out of it and the city comes into a view at that point in time and it's there that he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps over the city because the crowds are fickle and he knows it. These same throngs in a matter of a few days are going to be calling, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Jesus enters into the temple by this time, it's, it's later in the day. According to Mark, 
chapter 11, verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He does a few miracles when he enters into the temple. According to Matthew 21, verse 14, he heals the blind and the lame. He's confronted by the Sadducees, Matthew 21, verse 15 and 16. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were crying out of the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? Basically what he's saying to the Sadducees is that even the children are wiser than the rulers of Israel. Mark eleven eleven. the end of that afternoon, the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals have already closed up shop. So there's not that much happening in the temple anymore. And so late in the day, Jesus turns and leaves the temple and exits the city. According to Matthew chapter 21, verse 17, and he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. That is, he returns that night, Sunday evening, back to the city of Bethany, the town of Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives, there to reside with Lazarus <coughs> because he will be under the protection of his friend. May I ask you a question? Given the public acclamation, given his wild popularity, at least with a portion of the crowd, given their hatred of Roman occupation, given their dislike of the Sadducees and the abuses of the temple, given Sunday, why Friday? Given the events of Sunday, why Friday? What happened? What happened between Sunday and Friday that puts their king on a cross? Well, if you will come back and join with me Friday evening at 7 o'clock, I will answer that question for you. Given Sunday, why Friday? Let's pray. Our Father, as we pull together these different threads of the four gospel narratives, harmonizing them as we go and seeking to place them in chronological order, we get an amazing picture of the majesty, sovereignty of the great Davidic king. We see how he planned the events that led to the triumphal entry, how every bit of prophecy was fulfilled in him, right down to the simple thing of riding on the colt of a donkey. Our hearts are inflamed with love and passion 
for this one who would go right into the teeth, the lair of his enemies and proclaim in the hearing of the nation that their king had come. To offer them their kingdom long foretold in the prophets if they would but repent, turn from their sin, embrace him as the Lord of glory. He would be the sacrifice for their sin of their soul. And that they would receive that which had long been foretold. Yet our Father, they were not willing to listen. Their adherence was superficial at best. Their understanding corrupted and false. Their desire based upon what they could get out of it. So our Father, in the face of incontrovertible proof that the long foretold one would have come, they abandoned him for a murderer and a thief named Barabbas. Our Father, this is the depth of human sin. And it is the depth of the sin of our hearts as well. We look upon those ancient peoples not with arrogance, not in pride, not with a haughty spirit. For our Father, had we been there, we too would have called for the blood of the Holy One. But you have opened our eyes. You have redeemed our soul. The words of the prophet Ezekiel, you have taken from us the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. We have been washed. We have been cleansed. The very death of Christ and His resurrection has secured our eternal redemption. We now are Your people. And so when we read Your Word, our hearts are inflamed with love. Our Father, as we partake now of this simple meal, bread and the cup, who Christ Himself on the night in which He was betrayed transformed into a living memorial that as we take together we could proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Our Father, let us eat this morning in faith, believing that Christ is coming back. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.